Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous to your contracts, they said, What the f are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hello friends, this is Nemo Martin, creator of Tries Forgotten. I wanted to come in and thank you for checking out our swashbuckling adventure. There are a lot of people on deck at Rusty Quill helping to make this podcast possible, and the best way you can support us and our show is by spreading the word. Tell your friends and pirate nemeses, share us on social media with the hashtag TriceForgotten, rate and review us on your podcatcher of choice, maybe even play it on repeat for your aquarium buddies. We are still a small company, and we want to keep bringing more and more work to writers and performers in future seasons, but we can only do that if people listen and spread the word. If you want to contribute to us directly and get first word on new projects, behind the scene content, exclusive events, and more, consider joining the Rusty Quill Patreon over at patreon.com forward slash Rusty Quill. Now please, enjoy the episode. Rusty Quill presents Below Decks, a trice forgotten deep dive. Episode 2. Gender Through History. Hello and welcome to episode two of Below Deck, where we dive into some of the research, questions, stories and general tangentially interesting things that went into making Trice Forgotten. I'm Raffaella, my pronouns are she, they. I am the director of the series and also one of the writers. I'm thrilled today to be joined by our series creator, Nemo Martin, and by Hannah McGregor. First of all, I'm going to ask our guests to introduce themselves with their pronouns, and then we'll talk a little bit about gender. Nemo, would you like to introduce yourself again for our listeners? Sure. Hi, my name is Nemo. I use they them pronouns, and I'm very excited to be here again. Talk about gender. (laughs) Hannah, would you like to introduce yourself and explain who you are for the benefit of this conversation? (laughs) Absolutely. My name is Hannah McGregor. My pronouns are she, her. I am a scholar, I guess. I'm a professor at Simon Fraser University in Vancouver, British Columbia, Canada. And uh, I'm also a podcaster. I make a podcast called Witch Please, 
which is ostensibly about Harry Potter, but is actually sneakily about teaching people critical theory. <laughs> We'd love to hear it. So as I, as I teased just then in that intro, today we're going to talk about gender, which is quite a big deal in this show, mm. in terms of how it's been represented in historical periods, how we're representing it and creating a piece of historical fiction, and not just through time, but also through place, um, and how gender and ideas of gender differ across different global groupings of people. So, um, Nemo, I'm actually going to start by asking you if you would outline some of the ways in which gender is important to this story, not just as something that you and we wanted to represent, but why it feels to me like gender is really wrapped up in the heart of the story that we're telling here. So I wondered if you could talk about that a little bit first. Yeah, it's interesting because like when I was thinking as you were introducing and I was like, oh, I I don't know whether I did as much research about historical genders as I did about many other things in in the podcast. But then I realised that was a lie. (laughs) It's just that. So I'm actually doing a PhD at the same time right now, um, and it's about race and gender within Les Miserables, the Victor Hugo novel. And so in my mind, these two research projects are completely different, but they, they do end up influencing each other, of course. And while doing my PhD, it really has come to the... The centre of it is basically race and gender are tangible and super linked, Right. So story arcs in the show is about taxonomy. (laughs) And I mean, spoiler, not spoiler. It's how natural history links with the history of anthropology and history of racial science and then eugenics and genocide, slavery, the, the fact that we have racial brackets, it's all so interweaved, it's so interlocking. You can't, for me, talk about race without talking about gender. You can't talk about gender without talking about race because anything that we see as being a masculine or a feminine trait, quote unquote, are things created to make sure that white men and white women were seen as a different species from other races and so you know this is ostensibly about natural history (laughs) it's about like fish science or snail science (laughs) but it really was all formed around this like central thing which was the research topic of how we exist nowadays how 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 our society is fully based on these think of these white men codifying what they thought that race and gender should be for them that's a beautiful answer um hannah doing lots of very like vigorous nodding i know this is an audio medium and sometimes i think my role as host of these is just to mm. translate to the list of the beautiful things that i can see on our on nodding our so course. hard and literally biting my lip because i'm like too excited to have this conversation <laughs> hell yeah like, oh, oh, don't break in oh i love it so yeah, much how does your words with hannah how does your research and your areas of scholarship without the question mark that you put on it earlier sort of fit into this field or kind of is this field and yeah go on break in respond to what yeah I'm really interested in the history of white femininity in particular Mm. the sort of historical Mm. figure of the white woman and the, the sort of imaginative role that she has played historically um, particularly because of the role that she occupies, that we occupy, I am a white woman, um, in sort of contemporary feminist conversations and then unpacking the history behind that. And 
what you were saying, Nemo, is exactly true and so crucial to any conversations we're going to have today about feminism, about queer community, about gender, is that we have to understand that not only are race and gender indivisible as sort of two technologies of imperialism Mm. that were really being sort of developed through the late 18th, early 19th centuries, but that in many ways, race as a way of dividing and managing the world precedes gender. Mm. So that when we try to have conversations, say, about feminist organizing, which is very central to my own sort of thinking and activism, and we try to pretend that woman is this stable, universalizable, ahistorical category Mm. that can somehow, you know, unite us across difference. Not only is that, you know, a pretty ahistorical way of thinking about human identity, but it's actually a deeply depoliticizing way of thinking about human identity because it is it hinges on white women's desire to pretend that we occupy sort of the neutral identity of women Mm. as though our ability to stand in as the signifiers of womanhood isn't itself rooted in white supremacy mm. and eugenics. <laughs> There's me again, just like nodding, being like biting my tongue. I'm like, oh, <laughs> I, I want to reply so bad. Like one of the big things in, in my, uh, if you don't know the story of Le Miserable, um, one of the main characters, Fontaine, she is a white woman who falls into misery because of poverty. And it's really interesting, like, one of the big reasons why I started my PhD is because Victor Hugo says at one point, now that slavery has been abolished, slavery doesn't exist in the world except for white women. And throughout (laughs) the novel, he compares both Fontaine and Jean Valjean, the, like, male protagonist, with the language used for the enslavement of black people, but in the way that's, like as a shorthand to take that history centuries worth of oppression that is still going and putting it onto his white characters because his his readers he he was pro-abolition and i mean it, it was current affairs it was current affairs for him and he was taking those vivid emotions that white people were feeling about abolition and about enslavement and putting them onto his white characters <laughs> to give them like uh, uh, emotion, and mm-hmm. and now we have the musical on stage. We have BBC adaptation. We have all these adaptations, which are based on this idea that these are two super subjugated people, and we have completely taken out the fact that for Hugo, his readers would have read blackness in that, <laughs> and it's just, it, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the the flip side of that is the way that abolitionist writers like Harriet Beecher Stowe used sort of the tropes of sentimentality, which were about white Mm. femininity in many ways, to sort of quote-unquote humanize Mm. black characters, right? So you use the, the, the vocabulary of enslavement to signify the oppression of white characters, and then you use the vocabulary of white sentimentality to humanize black characters and still at the heart of all of these sort of ways of representing 
human suffering is this sort of continuous centering of whiteness as the neutral human. Mm. Just to so to bring this this very brilliant conversation into the context of Tries Forgotten, <laughs> we're going to get out yeah, of control yeah, yeah. very quickly if you don't ring us. In. Let's get out of control because these are context episodes. These are behind the scenes, and this is a really really brilliant slice of the context that went into creating a series where, you know, throughout literature and portrayals of the historical periods encompassing the last few hundred years what we get over and over again is black characters and characters of color who we are to read them through their proximity Mm. to a white character Mm -hmm. and in this show what we have is none of the central characters are white there are white characters in the show but none of our central our core family of characters are white so I wondered um, yeah Nemo did you when you were creating this series when you, and when you were writing your episodes did you I don't know was there anything that you had to unlearn or any kind of um, anything you had to unpick in your head in order to write this this world mm, and this group of people that's really interesting I sat for quite a long time trying to balance the main characters that we see So right now, when this episode is coming out, we've seen Elizabeth, Baker, Siva, and Noor. And I knew from the beginning that I wanted to have trans and non-binary characters. Um, Like, because I am a trans non-binary person, I want to see that happen. And what roles these characters took developed quite a lot as I kind of sat there and was thinking well which one's going to be the trans one or which one's going to be like the femme one which one's going to have more masculine qualities and stuff like that and and, you know it's really I mean again this came up with race because I was like well if this character is going to be more outspoken or if this character is going to be more timid then what race and gender are they going to be projecting themselves as and I really like it was really hard because at some point these characters also have to unlearn stuff that like they don't they don't exist in this podcast as being perfect they do have to go on character journeys and so making the balance of characters who grew up in a world where they did have to to some extent be educated in a certain way survive in a certain way versus from the very beginning I knew that there was not going to have like transphobic transphobic slurs or anything like you know you can't be this gender or you can't be that gender like that's not really going to be the question there's no question about whether these identities existed or exist because that's not something that interests me that can be something that other people study and and people have been studying for a really long time so i guess what i was really unlearning was like i mean to answer the question Yes, and I think it's a continual thing. And as the characters continue to develop, I was finding myself reminding myself that gender and race are really hard. <laughs> and 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 a lot of times I was making assumptions about the characters and then being like, no, I don't need to put that in, actually. I don't need to have that character be like this. So let's let's use that to talk about non-binary people in the past. Basically, that's the kind of that's the biggest um, headline I can think of for it. You know, we do not need to entertain the kind of the the nonsense misconception of this idea that this is a twenty-first century fad and no one no one used to be this 
you know, um, we we know this isn't true. And we actually, we touched on this a little bit in our first Below Deck episode where we talked about, our topic is we were talking about authenticity and accuracy. And we mm. talked a little bit about the language behind, okay, how do these characters in our sort of 19th century setting, how do these characters refer to themselves? Are they using the same language as us? If not, then what is the language that they're using and it's probably not that far off from the language that we would use so yeah i wonder if hannah nima you wanted to either of you wanted to talk about the the experience of being non-binary of living a a queer non-binary life in this this in the 18th 19th century Mm -hmm. i mean it is i think without question for historians of gender that the gender binary is a, again, historically fairly recent construct. And that, again, if we link it to imperialism and to white supremacy and to eugenics, our contemporary notion of the gender binary is very much a a technology of whiteness. And something that was sort of historically, again, sort of 19th century denied to a lot of non-white people, either imposed Mm -hmm. or denied, depending on how, you know, the violence of colonialism was operating on those populations. And you still see the way that that plays out in the kind of gendered and racialized policing of, for example, the way that black women who are good at Mm. sports are being accused of Mm -hmm. secretly, quote unquote, being men, which has its roots in this kind of masculinization of blackness and a kind of treatment of black people as being less gendered than white people, which was sort of part of the the technology of slavery or the way that Asian cultures are still really feminized Mm -hmm. because the role of India, say, under, scare quotes there too, I've used so (laughs) many scare quotes when I talk, (laughs) under Britain put India into a feminized Mm -hmm. position because of that kind of gender Mm -hmm. hierarchy at work. And so, you know, colonialism and imperialism was an imposition of of many sort of forms of violence that included a deliberate erasure of the actual range of genders that existed and continue to exist in a lot of the cultures that were being colonized. The context that I know best is indigenous nations in what Mm. we now call Canada, who now use the language of two-spirit to talk about non-binary genders. That's a a fairly contemporary word, but it is rooted in like a very long history. And, you know, it's an English term for gender identities that obviously have their own languages in different nations and different First Nations have different actual sort of terminology for different genders, Mm -hmm. as they would. Why would totally different nations with totally different languages and totally different histories have the same vocabulary and category of gender that we do in English? That wouldn't make any sense. But there's no denying that historically pre-colonization different places Mm. had different genders. It was kind of interesting because like one of the starting points for Trice Forgotten, I mean, this much is obvious, is Moby Dick, right? And the kind of like nautical epic. Mostly Mm. out of my, Mm. I mean, amusement with them, but not particular love of them. I mean, yeah, in that love-hate relationship, I love that he goes on like a 
rant about whales and none of the facts are true. <laughs> um, and in the same way, it goes on rants about people of color and, and, and none of the, the facts are true. But the relationship with Queequeg is really interesting because there's quite a lot of like gendered language even within these two ostensibly cis men. And again, racialization comes up with that. But the idea of like wife or the idea of, I mean, they put wife, husband kind of language into it. And away from just like romantic or sexual queerness, it always struck me as interesting in like gender wise, gender roles. I mean, on a ship, there are already quite a lot of gender play things happening anyway, even within like white Western sphere. Mm. And someone that I was talking to the other day, Nacha Chirapiwat, they're a researcher about stereotypes of, of East Asian people, especially in comedy. And they were saying that with stereotypes, one thing you learn a lot about is the people stereotyping the other people. And so you can look at stereotypes of East Asian people, East Asian men, you know, like a quote unquote lack of masculinity in East Asian men or a hyper femininity in East Asian women. And what you can see is what a Western desire for masculinity looks like. And so like, mm-hmm. you know, there are quite a lot of conversations about non-binariness in other cultures, but like the other conversation we can be having is how we can reflect that view back on white people. Like, what are you as a white person? Why have you created this stereotype? And it's because you are insecure about white male masculinity. You're insecure about white female femininity. You've created these stereotypes of other people because those are things that you are scared of. Those are things that you want to eradicate from the world. So when I was reading a lot of these, like, you know, white male nautical epics or, or just epics, you know, Le Miserable is another one. It's so fascinating to see when cis male characters use the language of femininity for themselves. Jean Valjean is an interesting one. He is in popular culture. I feel like we would see him as quite a big man, quite like violent in some regards, but just very like masculine. But in the novel, he's described as being a mother. He's described as being like very feminine, effeminate. He's described as being someone who, I mean, he's at home with a group of nuns. He takes like the name Madeline from Mary Madeline. Like all of these very feminine tropes. And, and why don't we then say that Jean Valjean is non-binary? Not just like, you know, typically like effeminate male people, but he's a very masculine person who use he, him pronouns. And I would say that's gender play so yeah i i really I, I, like both of these things mm-hmm. of like it, it's a colonial thing for sure it's a colonial thing and but yeah how can we turn that gaze back onto the white men of history <laughs> mm. mm-hmm. i do always think it's fascinating when the dominant person in the social hierarchy who is more often than not the white cis man or white cis woman coming very shortly behind kind of <laughs> finds loopholes mm in gender in the same way that to draw a kind of an unfortunately um sort of topical parallel i've been reading a lot about very sort of conservative christian women in the states who have had abortions but do not view their abortion as Mm. being the same as uh the type of abortions they're protesting against there is that Mm. for me but not for thee thing about gender where i do think it's something that everyone is trying to escape from all the time but we jean valjean cannot conceive of himself as non-binary because or we can't no 
not himself. He's not a real person. He um, is in my heart. We cannot He's my friend. <laughs> <laughs> I love him and he lives beside me all times. <laughs> um, we, and when I say we, I'm using a very, like, readers of the Western canon of literature. We cannot conceive of Jean Valjean as being uh, non-binary because non-binary is a thing that happens to marginalized groups non-binary is an existence that mm. uh, happens on a specific set of margins that we again a very loose we don't necessarily wish to associate our protagonist yeah. and our hero with i like that frame in tries forgotten there's the obvious thing of like non-binary and trans people always the villains and stuff so it like you know it's unsaid that our protagonists are the trans and non-binary people but Hopefully it's like, quote unquote, not the obvious people who are non-binary and tra- or like gender play. Like all of them play with their gender, like all of them do. Mm. And that's on purpose. All of the characters, even the white cis people that we are going to meet in later episodes. Gender play mm. is something that we considered in casting as well, which I find really interesting. And we, we can talk about that when those episodes come out, I guess. I know, there's a, there's a whole bunch of characters they want to talk about and we can't yeah. talk about them yet. But we do, I mean, this is, this is uh, you know, old school Judith Butler, but we are all playing with our genders all yes. the time. Like, we are all engaged in gender performance, in gender play, in gender performativity, which is not the same as gender performance, but is, you know, intersex with it. Like, as RuPaul said, you're born naked and the rest is drag. Like, <laughs> yeah. we're, we're, all, we're all playing this gender game yeah. and you can play it, you can do a real method acting approach mm. to it, or you can do a real camp <laughs> approach to it. But we're all yeah. we're all playing. I, it is interesting. Like I hadn't really thought about it before, but I think it is on purpose that Noor is our first like main character. Obviously, Elizabeth is actually the first trans, non-binary, agender character that we meet. But Noor is more established, mm. and obviously everyone's free to imagine what Noor dresses like or looks like or, or clothing that they wear. When I was picturing them in my head, I did imagine them wearing a headscarf, but having facial hair and having facial hair, not but, unpicking. Unpicking, <laughs> mm, And yeah. wearing quite loose feminine clothes, but feminine in how we see them as a Western people. And that was really on purpose. Like, I think that when you, when people see Noor, I don't think, in this, in the world, in my head, I don't think that you can look at Noor and put them as a binary gender, even though they wear things mm. that maybe would place them in the category of male or female because of religious things or because of cultural things or because of biological quote-unquote things yeah and and like you know the facial hair thing doesn't necessarily mean that nor without access to modern <laughs> healthcare means it does not mean that nor <laughs> was assigned male at birth quite a lot of these characters are based on people that I know, including quite a lot of brown women that I know, cisgender women, who have quite a lot of facial hair. Again, because of um, racial gender stereotypes that we have that we're like, oh, facial hair, that must mean that that person was either assigned this gender at birth or 
that they are taking hormones, but intersex people exist and just the amount of facial hair that you can grow as a person changes. So, yeah, like all of these things, which I mean, it's an audio medium. So these are things that are never like really going (laughs) to affect you as a listener but are things that I did think about when I was creating Noor. Mm. Well, it's important for people to know for the fans. <laughs> of course, of course. Um, and we do, we do know, because I, I, um, I think one of the episodes where we meet Noor for the first time, which is episode two, is an episode mm. that I wrote. So um, treading the line between, you know, again, I don't want to take away too much imaginative power from the listener, but what are the things that's really important for us to know about Noor? And I settled on two things. One is they are hench as hell. Yes, they yes, are yes tall and strong stronger than anyone else in the ship they yeah, are canonically they are the strongest big. person on the ship a real Jean Valjean <laughs> uh-huh. oh no <laughs> oh whoops <laughs> this is what you've done Nemo this is what you've created um, and the other thing is that they have they are wearing this beautiful intricate jewellery yes. and both of those things you may read as being suggestive of a particular gender, but when you actually dig down into them, neither of them have an inherent connection to masculine or feminine. Being hench and wearing beautiful jewellery <laughs> are not the exclusive preserve of one gender or another, especially when you, you um, detach from a, a Western mm, context. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the other sort of piece of this that we haven't put into play yet is class. Mm, yeah, for sure. Because, you know, gender and class are also deeply interwoven. And I've been, I recently wrote an article about the history of the color pink, because mm. I'm very cool. Hell yeah. <laughs> and that's an example, right? That like pink <laughs> as a color that people wear sort of comes into existence in the 18th century, sort of primarily via colonialism because they you know european nations start to extract new things from colonies that allow them to create new clothing dye colors and pink is a sign of wealth that has absolutely no gendered affiliation you wear pink to show off that you can afford clothes that have been dyed pink Mm. so like you know jewelry has a similar role like jewelry often indicates wealth or social status or belonging to a particular family or caste and and has very little to do with with gender as we think about adornment being being legible for sure the class thing is very important with Noor as well like Noor comes from a fishing background and they are not someone who comes from a family who can afford a lot of jewelry they're not from a family that can afford a lot of ostentatious clothing and Mm -hmm. the fact that they do have these things is important and is part of their gender presentation for a reason and yeah the people who can afford to have gender like in the show Hmm. that is a really that's a good way to frame it i guess Oh, I want to talk about a character who hasn't appeared yet so badly. <laughs> we'll revisit. We'll just have to keep doing the same episode by week until yeah, we've met all the characters. It's just like a deconstruction of, well, this week's gender is. <laughs> uh, I keep thinking about, there's this excellent, there's a few scholars who's like really, really have shaped my my understanding of this historical period and how it relates to race and class and gender. Um, Simone Brown is a huge one. She she has a wonderful book called Dark Matters, which is about the history of uh, the surveillance of black mm. people. 
which is a real, if you're trying to stop relying on Foucault to <laughs> understand how power works in modernity, strongly recommend Simone Thank Brown you. as a somebody who's like, hey, you know how Foucault's talking about the Panopticon and Jeremy Bentham? Well, Jeremy Bentham based the Panopticon on slave ships. Mm. So let's talk about who actually might understand modernity and surveillance technologies. But Kyla Schuller also has this wonderful book called The Biopolitics of Feeling. Yeah. That is about the role that... Have you read it? It's, yeah, I read it for this, actually. Really? Oh, yeah. well, that makes that explains why I felt it in the, in the DNA of this series, <laughs> because it's... It's about sentimentality and this this concept that she refers to as impressibility, which is our individual and collective capacity to be impacted by forces external to us, sometimes also referred to as our malleability. And she talks about how sort of whiteness was constructed via this heightened uh, impressibility that white people are understood as being much more malleable according to the sort of 19th century race science than people of color with the exception of childhood. Mm. So there's this idea that, that during childhood, people of color had a heightened impressibility, which was how white people justified the stealing of children mm. during childhood, so, you know, such as the, the history of residential schools. And that sort of within this like whiteness equals impressibility and malleability, which then equals whiteness equals civilizability, because yeah. civilization is about the ability to sort of transform. We then have this problem of like impressibility is good, but also what if too much? Mm. <laughs> what, what if impressibility, but too much? Yeah. Um, and then the answer to that is women, <laughs> yeah. but we'll make white women responsible for the feelings yeah. and then white men can just do the civilizing. And then we have all of these technologies that, that emerge out of that, like sentimentality, like diet culture mm. also comes right out of this because it becomes this like, oh, white women feel too much. White women have too much embodiment and so must be constantly managed but it's one of the really the really striking things I think about the characters in Thrice Forgotten is that there is this way that because we see them between their childhoods and mm. who they are now and we see them change through the series that there is this like real insistence <laughs> that like, oh, look at this. Not only are we seeing the way in which people who are not white are constantly transforming, transforming one another, mm. transforming in relation to the things that happen to them, but are also transforming outside of the context of whiteness. Yeah. Like are not transforming because a white person is changing mm. them, um, but transforming in relation to one another. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I was like, wow, that's such a good way of describing the show. Like it, it, one yeah. thing that I have been working on, as a human being is the fact that I have grown up in England surrounded by whiteness and my ability to succeed has always been how intelligent I can make other people think that I am and so a lot of times that has meant suppressing being a feeling human being <laughs> someone who is hurt by things someone who is um saddened by things, joyful about things, in order to appear 
like the white man civilized and mm-hmm. and so creating this podcast like something that has been really freeing is the idea that like these characters are intelligent but also they have feelings and those are complex feelings and those complex feelings means that sometimes that they we talked about them being messy last week that they're allowed to have both of these things they can be incredibly clever mm-hmm. people but they have emotions they feel joy like one thing that like we rarely ever get to see is characters having joy (laughs) and being sad by the world Mm. or being allowed to be angry like one thing that i've never been allowed to be is angry because Mm. if you're angry then you're not taken seriously and you should calm down and have a rational explanation and and that is something that i have to work on in my real life my day-to-day interactions with people is like i'm allowed to be angry at the same time as being clever (laughs) like yeah i'm glad that you brought up this because They are so ingrained within me as a writer, but also within the show. Something that, um, to sort of, I guess, to to piggyback on that slightly, so my, um, so at the top, my pronouns are she, they, which I changed within the last year and obviously like like anyone who's changed their pronouns had obviously actually been thinking about this for mm. for years prior and going my my relationship with womanhood feels so mm. unstable and part of that is because I'm a fat person and part of that is because it's already and, and fatness yeah. and queerness are so intrinsically just related to each other and part of that is I already have identified as queer in other ways and it kept coming down to this very circular question of going do I not feel like a woman because I'm not a woman or do I not want to be a woman because I don't feel like I can adequately perform womanhood and because I don't like what the sort of white western definition of womanhood is and I kept sort of chasing my own tail on that for a really long time until my partner who is a cis man when hmm. I mean does it matter and like, are they not kind of ultimately the the same thing you know do you if we put you in a vacuum it's quite possible that you would feel differently but you don't live in a vacuum and that it kind of feels so um very very apt to these characters linking back to um that idea of they are they're not developing in relationship to how how a white character or how in lots of cases how a cis character kind of thinks that they should be mm. developing and i think that is something really beautiful in what you've created nemo is essentially this simultaneous sense that these are queer characters living queer lives that are also sensible of the ways in which other people are going to stereotype them, categorize them, mm. taxonomize mm. them. As you were saying that, which like couldn't agree more, have conversations about the instability of gender for fat queer people a lot. Mm. Because I do like, I identify primarily as a fat mm-hmm. femme because feminist feels much more comfortable to me than womanness, mm. which I also am like, mm. well, what does that mean? And also, the way that these TERFs are talking about being a woman, I'm like, well, I don't... Mm. That, I definitely don't <laughs> feel. Yeah, I don't I don't want to be a member of that club. Whatever. If that is the way that being a woman feels, that I don't know. But what you really... What your differentiation there between, you know, am I quote-unquote, like, really non-binary or really a woman or really... Makes me think about the history of the medicalization... Mm of gender and sexuality, which is the sort of 
again, mm. a like 19th century shift to being like, let's identify homosexuality as like something that can actually be like medically or scientifically located within the body somewhere. Mm. And that has been um, like kind of a, uh, a, a tactic that queer folks have used in order to gain rights. Yeah. This argument, right, of like, you're just born gay. You're just born this way and there's nothing you could do about it. So, and that, like, we, we can see how that's been tactically used. Like, well, you can't make gay people not gay. Mm. So I guess you just have to put up with mm. us. And I think, you know, again, medicalization has a particular history, has had a particular use historically, but still always defaults to this, like, cis-hetero default. Like, we're assuming that the human is naturally cisgender and heterosexual, and so we have to sort of medically identify difference. And if we if we just refuse that premise, mm. then the whole idea of like, oh, well, am I really like, am I really, or do I just kind of feel that way because of the circumstances of my life? Yeah. Like what does really mean in that mm. context? And it does have under its surface, this kind of medicalization, mm. right? Like if somebody could do a test on me, if I could have blood work done, what would it mm. say my gender was? And it's like, well, that's not, that's nothing. Mm. Like you're, there is no real gender. I've had quite a few friends during lockdown come out, mm. use other pronouns, and quite a lot of these conversations start with like, oh, I don't want to be taking up space. And it's <laughs> like, there's no space to take up. <laughs> Anyone could be non-binary. If someone like, like was born male, likes wearing male clothing, likes having short hair and presenting as mask, but wants to consider themselves non-binary, then there is, you can fully do that. Like. Yeah, uh, this idea that non-binary has to be like, oh, well, they're a bit ambiguous and they're like femme but light or like anything <laughs> like that. It's just so... Diet femme. Yes, exactly. <laughs> it, it's so wild. And every time I'm like, if you want to be non-binary, you can. And if you decide that you don't like it, then you can do that also. Continue questioning mm. forever. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. <laughs> yeah. So we will have to wrap up soon, which is gutting because i'm so enjoying this conversation to use that and kind of let's to bring it back to telling stories about non-binary people and telling stories about gender more broadly is it i don't know if i agree with the thing that i'm saying but is it therefore more freeing in a way to set this in the past where these characters who are non-binary they don't have an online community they don't have discourse they don't have a kind of a a set of language to go back to our previous episode being offered to them they are simply finding their way to the gender expression and the and the gender identity i say simply not simply at all but they are finding their way in a world in which many different contexts apply to the contexts that we experience gender in when we tell when we create fictional worlds and when we tell fictional stories nemo is it more freeing said it in the past is them you know is there more to say sending it in the past hannah i'd be so interested to hear about some of your readings of gender in that <laughs> well well i don't know if because we, we'd have another three hours but yeah both of you tell me about telling these stories in fiction yeah i mean what i will say is that 
there is always a imaginative freedom in fiction that's the joy of fiction is that we can use it as a space to work things through and think about context in different ways and that for that reason the fiction that is the most exciting to me and I think to a lot of queer folks is the fiction that uses its imaginative possibilities to imagine otherwise whether that's looking at the past in a different way than we have been fed narratives of the past or using fantasy or speculative fiction as an opportunity to interrogate our assumptions about how gender and race and power and identity operate. It's why I find things like Game of Thrones so profoundly boring, (laughs) because why would you just project such a stable notion of of like gendered violence Mm. into the past? Like you've got dragons and you couldn't think about Mm. gender in a different way. Okay. All right. All right. The failure of imagination. And in that sense, Harry Potter is also a failure of imagination on many, many levels. What's exciting for me about the world that's emerged around Harry Potter is what the fans have done, who have who have taken up a series that is, I would say, remarkable for its lack of context, because the world <laughs> yes. building in that series is so poorly done. But that has become a sort of way in for yeah fans is that you can be like well none of these questions are answered so I can just Mm. go ahead and answer them myself but that that's one of the things that strikes me about Thrice Forgotten is that it's not people you know finding their way through gender without context it's without our Mm. context but it's like they're good characters because they come out of contexts that they are navigating and that are informing things like their understanding Mm. of their gender I think that I had an easy time of it in a certain way because obviously there was all this research that went into the show. But at a certain point, like these characters don't have Wikipedia and they don't have Twitter and they don't have Tumblr. And like you say, Raf, they're not like immersed in identity politics and discourse and they don't have to like one up each other on like knowledge about each other. Mm. In order to know more about the world, they have to ask each other questions or take what the other person says at face value. Mm. And so when Siva and Noor are talking, Siva just has to accept that what Noor is saying is the truth and what the truth is for nor is like you know the truth we've talked about like authenticity and stuff like that but like what nor is Mm. saying is i am this these are the people that i come from and sila has no way to fact check that or to be like well actually Mm. i've read that non-binary people don't exist in the protectorate of aiden like (laughs) and we're gonna meet some characters in the future who who just come out and be like oh this is my gender and like we're moving past that because yeah there's no uh asexuality wikia or agender wikia that like you can go and read And, and for some you know, I am very, very glad that we have these resources now, like the internet, like, mm. I wouldn't know that I was non-binary without the pages and pages of research that other people have done it before me. But for a story setting, like, it's so much easier than when a character can just be like, this is my identity, and the other characters are like, can't debate you on that. <laughs> yep. Yeah, they've, the characters who get to be the authority on themselves, which feels great fantastic we're going to bring things to a close there um, but before we go hannah where can we find more of you oh well you can find me on twitter and instagram at hkp mcgregor 
very, very formal, very serious, <laughs> and hannahmcgregor.com. And I also have a book coming out in September. September 2022, I have a book coming out called A Sentimental Education, which is about queerness and fatness and whiteness and colonialism and sentimentality and mm. podcasting. So I feel like related to some of our it's conversations a little, A little, maybe. And Nemo, where can we get more of you? Um, I am on Twitter at Zeus underscore Japonicus, or you can just type my name, Nemo Martin, into Twitter. I also have a podcast about Les Miserables. If you want more thoughts about Jean-Fashan being non-binary, um, <laughs> yeah, you should go listen to that. It's called Bread and Barricades, a Les podcast, or it's on Twitter at Les podcast, L-E-S-M-I-S podcast. So, yeah. Raf, where can people find you? What do you have to plug? Thank you so much for asking, Nemo. Um, I am on Twitter at Rafaela Marcus, R-A-F-A-E-L-L-A-M-A-R-C-U-S. It's very silly and unprofessional Twitter. Don't hold it against me. And I do not have a book or a podcast to plug, um, but I have written my first play, yeah. which is called Sap. Uh, it's the most beautiful poster I've ever seen for a play. So even if you just go <laughs> to look at the, the, the poster, you should go and do that. Yeah, just go and look at my header on my Twitter page because it is a, an extraordinarily beautiful poster. I'm sure the play is great as well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the play's fine. Um, and that, that play is also about queerness and it's a sort of a thriller and it's based on Greek mythology. Um, so if you, uh, this I think will be the past, but it will have been on, had its debut on um, at the Edinburgh Fringe at Summerhall. And maybe, maybe we'll be around and about again in the future, possibly. Yeah. Thank you so much, both of you, again. And thank you, listener. We will see you next time. Below deck. Goodbye. (laughs) Trice Forgotten is a podcast distributed by Rusty Quill and licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution non-commercial share-alike 4.0 international license. The series is created by Nemo Martin and directed by Rafaela Marcus. Today's episode featured Rafaela Marcus, Nemo Martin, and Hannah McGregor, and was edited by James Austin, Laurie Ann Davis, and Catherine Ranella. Trice Forgotten is produced by Ian Greers and Laurie Ann Davis, and production manager Natasha Johnston, with executive producers Alexander J. Newell and April Sumner. To subscribe, view associated materials, or join our Patreon, visit rustyquill.com. Rate and review us online, tweet us at the Rusty Quill, visit us on Facebook, or email us at mail at rustyquill.com. Thanks for listening. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.